It's been exactly one year since we finally covered our first Royal Diaries book on the podcast. Back then, my guests and I chatted about the Marie Antoinette installment from the series, which I read and enjoyed when I was a kid. One year later, we are getting back into the Royal Diaries, and this time it's with a title that was new to me and my guest. You'll hear us talk a lot today about how upset we are that this diary and its subject are only crossing our paths now. The book is called Anna Kaona, Golden Flower, Haiti, 1490. It was written by award-winning, best-selling author Edwige Dantica and published in 2005 as the second-to-last Royal Diaries title. When we meet Anna Kaona, she, along with her brother, is preparing to assume the role of chief on the island of Zaragua, which is in modern-day Haiti. Over the course of the book, her life is turned upside down in what feels like a hundred different ways, whether it's her uncle's ongoing illness, her military training, her marriage, the birth of her child, or the arrival of white colonizers to her beloved home. You'll hear us discuss all of these moments on episode 188. My guests and I also have conversations about the revisionist history we've been taught, the power of fictionalized diaries as a teaching tool, the dread we felt as we approached the end of Anna Kaona's story, the ethics of reading someone else's journal, and our parasocial relationships with royalty over the years. We also demand more of Anna Kaona in the cultural conversation. We briefly discuss death by suicide in this episode, so please be aware of that if it's going to be triggering for you. My guest today is the wonderful Amber Burns. Amber is a writer, podcaster, and avid reader currently living, like me, in Philadelphia. You can follow Amber on Instagram and Twitter at ByAmberBurns. Amber's podcast, Thank You For Asking, is available wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you, Amber, for taking the time to join me for this episode of SSR. If you want to stay on top of all things SSR, join the fun on social media. Find the show on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. As this episode drops, it's the first week of April, which means we have two, that's right, two, book clubs kicking off in the SSR universe. First, let's talk about the free SSR Book Club, also known as the SSRBC. In the SSRBC, volunteer leaders from our listener family facilitate ongoing conversations about a book that's previously been covered on the podcast. April is all about Pretty Little Liars. Join the fun at no cost at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. We are also getting things rolling this week in the SWR Shit We Read book club. Membership in SWR is one of many awesome exclusive rewards available to listeners who support the show on Patreon. I run these book clubs every month myself, and if I do say so myself, they're pretty great. This month, we are reading Alison Cochran's The Charm Offensive. If you've already read it and want to discuss or still have it on your TBR, it's definitely not too late to jump in. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Some of the other bonuses available to patrons include an invitation to the SSR Discord channel, podcast merch, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, and more. Thanks to all of the patrons listening now. I also want to say thank you to everyone who's left a rating or review of the podcast on their favorite listening platform. If you haven't done this yet and are feeling inspired to do so, it really would mean so much to me. And more than that, it helps the show attract more eyes and ears. 
Posting ratings and reviews really is the best thing you can do to support the indie podcasts and podcasters you love. If you enjoy listening to audiobooks, you need to check out Libro.fm. Libro.fm is an audiobook marketplace and listening platform that offers an alternative to shopping with giant companies. It's true. Now, when you listen to the books on your TBR, you can actually support independent bookstores. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Amber. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to another conversation about a Royal Diaries book because it has been a while. Yeah. So funnily enough, like when you reached out and that was one of the options, someone had mentioned them to me and I could not remember these books like at all. But as soon as I started reading, I was like, oh yeah, I think I did read these and love these. So it was so fun to get to revisit them again. Sometimes I feel guilty because I'm like assigning homework to guests. But also I think once people get into it, they're like, oh, wait, I missed this and I needed this so badly. (laughs) If I had to get assigned homework, I don't mind it being like middle grade book homework. (laughs) Excellent. I'm glad that I could help you out there. So I was actually not familiar with this book. The installment that we are talking about today, listeners, is Anna Kayona, Golden Flower, and the sort of dateline is Haiti 1490. This was the second to last book published in the Royal Diaries series. It came out in 2005. I think by that time, I had sort of outgrown the Royal Diaries books. I read a lot of them like when they were first coming out, but by then I had moved on. And I do think it's interesting to note that the Royal Diaries series continued well past when the Dear America series ended, even though it was a spinoff of Dear America. So I do think that this series ended up having legs. Amber, I know you said that you didn't remember this series initially, but once you started to read this book and remembering your time with the Royal Diaries, was there anything that came up for you, like any memories that you had or any titles that were especially memorable? Yeah, it was just really a nostalgic reading experience. I actually remember, I don't know if it was... Royal Diaries or Dear America, but I definitely had a teacher who would give us like print-offs of the book. Like instead of each of us getting a copy of the book, it would be either a couple chapters from one or a whole book printed out as like handouts that we would do like these assignments with. Like it just took me completely back to like third grade history class, like learning about all these different things. And I was like, wow, it's really interesting how they were like books written, like fictionalized retellings written to help you know, give you like a fun way to revisit history, but they also became like quasi textbooks for me. Wait, that's so cool. I'm so jealous that you had this kind of a teacher. My teachers did not do this. Yeah. And I think it also was because 
like I guess I could only imagine what it's like to teach a third grader like global history like I probably yeah. did not care but I definitely would have cared about reading the diary of these people and so much of history then was told to us through these like fake diary entries like I feel like a lot of us grew up getting the diary of Anne Frank as required reading and it was always a journal or a diary which was really always interesting to me and now that I'm older and like an avid journaler I'm like hmm I don't know how I feel about that but it was always really fun to me getting to explore history through like someone's personal reflections would you mind saying more about the fact that you don't know how to feel about this now that you're an avid journaler because I am a very failed journaler <laughs> like I regularly tried to journal when I was younger I've sort of given up trying by now because it's just like clearly not for me. But I'm curious like why you have mixed feelings about this as a format because I adored epistolary novels when I was a kid Uh and we do cover them quite a bit on the podcast. But now that you mention it, like I guess as an adult, I'm like, hmm, how are we supposed to feel about the notion that these like teen girls' thoughts are being put out there for everyone? Yeah, I think that's it. It's for me one in most of these novels, I don't mind the ones that are fictionalized. I think that's totally fine. Like as a style, it makes so much sense. But like, if you take Anne Frank, for example, I'm like, that is super personal. Like it's her deepest, darkest, like her insecurities, really, really intimate musings and thoughts. And I'm like, personally, I want to bury the journals with me. Like, you don't need to know. I didn't tell you for a reason. And it's great to add that like extra layer of historical context, but it's also like not your business. So it just seems kind of like an intrusion to get access to those people so intimately when they had no intention for it going down like that. Okay, what about a weird middle of the road like we find in Royal Diaries where yeah. these are books that are, and we know, of course, that they're fictionalized, but they are about real girls. It's different than Dear America because Dear America, those characters are sort of constructed right. from evidence of like lots of young women that lived during that time. But in the Royal Diaries, we have actual historical figures, which I do think is sort of this middle ground between what you're talking about, which is like a totally fictionalized novel and then something that is literally like ripped from the pages of right. somebody's <laughs> innermost thoughts and feelings. So how do you, where do you land on that? I'm much more comfortable with this middle ground approach, especially because we do know that so much of it is fictionalized. I mean, even in this book, I thought that it was nice that there were so many parts of it that didn't have to be explicitly written on the page. Like we find out that she's having a baby, but we don't have to hear about all of like the intimate thoughts that someone who was chronicling their life as detailed as she was would have probably written and then ideally like they would have just published all of that, like all the juicy stuff. So I'm fine with that. But I always think about, because the idea is when you have royalty, like their lives are living history, right? So we automatically as like, that's like one of the the trade-off, like, yeah, we get to elevate you in this position, but we get all like the juicy details about your life, which always just makes me think is any history accurate? Because if I knew that all of my letters and diaries and things were going to one day be published and become recorded history, I would just lie. Yeah, that's so true. And it's also like, it speaks to this conversation that we have in 2022 about like influencer culture and celebrity culture and like how much are we owed as a public that follows and supports and like finances a lot of these individuals. Like how much do they quote owe us? Like I think the Kardashians are a really great example. Like Pete Davidson and Kim just went public last week and I feel like everybody's like at last, like we've been entitled (laughs) to this information. And I don't have a strong feeling either way, but that's just the example that comes to mind. Like, I don't know, I, I feel sort of weird now that we're in this conversation about the fact that like Anna Kayona and all the other royal young women that were profiled, profiled loosely in the <laughs> series, 
I don't know. Like, I guess if I centuries and centuries from now found out that like somebody wrote my fake diary, like I would probably be frustrated by that. Yeah. Yeah, completely. It's like the royals and leaders and political leaders have existed like before the first Instagram celebrities. So those are like the first parasocial relationships that society had where it's like you're obsessed with these people and you do feel entitled to know so much about them because you're funding their lives but you also don't know them so when we get things like a diary that are supposed to be these deeper insights into who they are and how they lived it's almost like of course I want to believe that it's one all true and I am totally entitled to this level of detail because it's like I know them they're my person but in reality like you probably have never met these people so it's really interesting to me. Oh, yeah, they laid the groundwork. They walked so that all of these influencers could run. (laughs) For better or for worse. For better or for worse. For better or for worse. So I'm curious, Amber, as to why you chose this particular installment, the Anna Kaona book. Um, And I will be totally honest, and I am not proud of this, but this was a new story for me. This represents a huge gap in my own education, which I think speaks to something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, which is the whiteness of the way that history is often portrayed or always portrayed historically in the American public school system. And I was shocked by how little I knew about this perspective from the 15th century. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I wanted to pick this book. I knew as soon as I saw Royal Diaries, I was like, yes. I mean, anyone who follows me knows I'm totally royally obsessed. Like, And I have been for like years, like since I was a young teenager. And I'm super into learning more about all these European royals for the simple fact that they're so accessible. Like they have so much recorded history. They have so much visibility now. And when I saw this, I was like, this is a chance to kind of like tap that royal obsessed indicate like thing about me but also get to explore a story that I wasn't familiar with and I'm also super super terrible at geography and I know nothing about that part of the world historically and I'm like this is also giving me a chance to kind of get my bearings about how people were moving during that time and how everyone ends up where they end up because at this point like colonialism is crazy everyone is super connected through these new quote-unquote new lands they're discovering and invading and now so much of our culture is a reflection of what happened during that time so I was super interested to see how the story was going to be told and I was also really intrigued by the fact that she's this young woman but there's no there was like never a question about her power from the beginning Like it wasn't like a she's the story of her trying to show that she was worthy of power. It was inherent to her. And I felt like a lot of times stories about women of color, black women who were leaders, they're told from like the her life was in danger. No one wanted her on the throne. She was hiding from birth. And I love that this one kind of just put her in the spotlight and was just a story of her life. Yeah, she's so strong immediately. And and I think there's also a huge contrast between the way that we see Anna Kayona from the very beginning of the book um, and the way we see Marie Antoinette portrayed at the very beginning of the Royal Diaries book that we read, I think last year on the podcast, I'll make sure I link that episode in the show notes. But I think like, I mean, don't get me wrong. And I'm sure we'll get into this more. Like there's definitely a lot in this book about marriage as strategy and as a representation of power and the way that power is distributed. But in the Marie Antoinette book, it felt so much more as though Marie Antoinette was like waiting around to be told like where she was going to go, how much power she was going to have, even though she had been born into a royal family, like that didn't mean anything. Whereas Anna Kaona, like 
she is very much aware of how much power she has. She seems to have so much more agency. And even though ultimately, like she has to make some decisions about sort of where she wants to rule and where she's willing to cede some of her power, she just has a lot of confidence, which was a great thing to see in contrast to a book like the Marie Antoinette title. Totally. And I think if you've read or even are familiar with any of like the European royals that is the story it's like a girl no matter how high born she is sits and waits for like the assignment of her life to be given to her but in this book I even love the fact that when it came time for Anna Kayone to get proposed to and she's getting proposed to by this like supreme chief so he's like it doesn't get much more powerful than him but they still told her like you have to accept it no one can accept this on your behalf so there was so much more agency in that she was super confident and I love how just assured that she was in her fate being her own she wasn't even putting it in the hands of someone else I mean you rarely see that in history I feel Mm. and there are so many reasons that I am upset that I didn't know anything about Anna Kayona or anything about this group of people but one more reason that I'm really upset is that they have such like strength and like their customs, I think, were so different. Their culture was so different than sort of what I was taught was the norm for this period in history, like the role of women. Like, I, I just think that yeah. I at least was raised on the belief that like there was only one way of being at this point. Yeah. And obviously that's not true. And like life was brutal in so many ways, clearly. And we get to that toward the end of this book. But I think that Anna Kayona's people also had like a lot of things figured out that like the people that I was learning about when I was in elementary school from the 15th century certainly had not mastered yet. Completely. There was so much ingenuity present within their community, within their way of life. And so much of the history that we learned in school is revisionist, where it's always described that there were these people who were struggling and they were living in despair and they couldn't figure it out. And there was disease rampant. Meanwhile, in this book, we get this reflection of these healers in their community who are able to basically like keep her uncle alive when he was on death's door, like four times who have mastered the land and understand all like the healing properties of what they have resources for and who are extremely reliant on one another. That was one thing that I love seeing. I feel like history makes it out to be that there were all these separate people who all individually needed to be saved when in reality they were individual people, but also a collective who are willing to help one another and lean on one another for strategy. Like when the one village was raided they immediately sent resources. Or when a hurricane hits, they knew that someone would come and offer them food and resources. So nobody was helpless and no one was waiting for like their white savior to show up on a boat and like take their gold and fix everything. That's just the way that history has always been told to us. Yeah. And I almost felt because of this sense of like community support, like I kept kind of losing track of where we were geographically. (laughs) Like you, I'm very bad at geography. And a lot of the words in this book, they're Tainos words. So Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with them. And to be quite frank, like a lot of them are very similar and just unfamiliar to my tongue and to my eye. And so I kept like confusing kind of the names of the different islands and the different communities, which I think, again, is partially because of my ignorance that like I've never heard of these places before. But to your point, Amber, is also because there's kind of this sense of flow between all of these places. And they are constantly sending people to each other, sending resources to each other and just kind of showing up generally in whatever way is needed. Yeah, exactly. It was also very hard for me to kind of picture where everyone is. Like even when she leaves her home island and goes and gets married, I was like, well, how far is this? Are they like across the way or just like a day long trip? Like it was really hard. But I think that is because of the way that we've been 
retaught history, it's kind of like there was America and then there's like some stuff below there and then there's Mexico. But like no need to like label anything. It's all fine. And then you go across the ocean and there's Europe. Africa is somewhere. Africa is also a country. So it's like it's always so hard to get your bearings because the main players have always just been North America and Europe for so long. So it was kind of interesting to me how many other islands are named that I was like, where are like, what are the common names of them now? Where are they? Because I know, obviously, it takes place in now what we now call Haiti. And the island that she's originally from is Hispaniola. But I still am confused about like, who are then all the neighboring islands. Right, because she is a royal in an island or on an island that's called Zaragua. Her uncle is the chief ruler of this island, of this community, and she and her brother have kind of been handed over to him because my understanding is he didn't have children. And so yeah, their parents kind of like gave them up and were like, sure, like you can go <laughs> kind of, yeah, take them, like see which one you want to pick to be in charge when you die. And so when we meet her, she is very comfortable with this idea that she will one day rule Zaragua either on her own or with the help of her brother. Like that's just kind of the status quo for her. She's always believed that that will be her destiny. And I thought it was so interesting that like her parents are kind of just like living their normal lives. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, yeah, our kids are royal, but we're just, you know, your average everyday nobles. (laughs) Yeah. They just like occasionally will hang out. Like she and her mom go swimming sometimes or they like go do activities, but then she's like, gotta go mom. Like gotta go back to. (laughs) Portraying to be a ruler. I'll see you later. (laughs) Yeah. It was so interesting, but learning about these islands, it was difficult just to wrap my head around it. I agree. And then even in doing kind of my follow-up research before you and I talked, because all of the names are different now because of colonialism, like it's really difficult to figure out the counterparts to things and Mm -hmm. to understand where the history really matches up. So I, of course, appreciate the efforts that were made to translate the history as best as possible for this book, because there's so much that we don't know and probably never will know. Yeah. And it also just makes you wonder how much we can't know because it literally is lost in translation. There are probably some people, places, words, stories that just literally can't be translated. And we've kind of completely severed the connection between the two because of so many years of revisionist history and colonialism, which makes me sad, but even more appreciative for stories like this that even just remind you that there is like some tether to these stories that we didn't know before. And to that point, there's an opening note in this book about how Anna Kanoa and her people actually didn't read or write in the way that we might define reading or writing. And so the idea here is to kind of speak through her storytelling tradition. And unlike the other Royal Diaries books, which are dated like with our familiar dating system, this book is dated using a lunar cycle, which Mm -hmm. the author notes is probably what her people would have relied on in terms of like marking the days. And this was an agricultural community. So that was probably how they were managing to keep track of what needed to be done from a day to day basis. So what did you think of that author's note? Like in the reviews that I came across and to be fair there aren't that many in the reviews that I came across like there were kind of mixed feelings about how successful that was I think there was another book in the Royal Diaries series that apparently had like a similar disclaimer and um there were some opinions that perhaps that other book Mm. was more successful with the storytelling tradition of it all. But when I was reading it, it didn't really occur to me like I was just very immersed in what was going on. Yeah I don't think I really paid much attention to it the say I maybe would have paid more attention to it if it was like a year and a month that I was used to just because it would have been just a bigger call out to me but it didn't 
it didn't take away from the story at all to me. And I think that what was also helpful and unique is that all of the moon cycles are also kind of paired by where they were agriculturally. So it would be like the yucca harvest or like the peanut harvest. So you could kind of see that like, okay, at least a season has passed if you're not super familiar with like the moon cycles and how much time each of those takes or when in the year it would be. So I didn't think it took away from it at all. I'm kind of surprised that people would even nitpick at that. Yeah, I will say the reviews that I found were generally sort of nitpicky. I Mm. will link them in the show notes in case anybody wants to check them out. I think that probably a lot of the people who are going back and reviewing these books on their blogs are like real aficionados in the series. (laughs) Like probably have a lot of thoughts on how to compare one book Mm -hmm. to the next. But yeah, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, I actually think this is really cool and a big undertaking. And and it's bold to like to take that on. And so I think that the result was really well done. But we we touched on this before, but I think we really need to dive into the question of Anna Kanoa's marriage prospects, because that is a theme across all of these Royal Diaries books, at least the ones that I remember. Of course, in centuries gone by, the expectation was that women, especially royal women, especially young women would get married well before we would think is quote normal in 2022. And so even as a young teenager, Anna Kayona is like very comfortable with the fact that she's probably going to get married relatively soon. And she has a crush, which a I kind crush. of, I <laughs> crush. and I loved it. I loved the moments when she was just like doing typical teenage things. Like yeah. they played ball a lot, which I thought was really yeah. fun. Like, I was like, oh, right, they're kids. I have to remember that they're kids. And she has this crushed on the chief from like a neighboring island from a neighboring village and she because it's 1490 and they don't really have an easy way to communicate she's just like waiting to hear from him (laughs) and like any day now he'll show up that was the funniest part to me because it's like he comes for like i guess it was called her hair cutting ceremony yeah and he comes and she's like super smitten and then he leaves and she's like well to be determined Yeah. Like, like there's yeah. no texting. There's no seeing if you watched your Instagram story. You just have to wait and hope for the best. Yeah. I feel like him coming to see her and then leaving is kind of like leaving somebody on red or like yeah. leaving somebody on scene. Like, I know yes. that I know you're here. I have to think about it. I acknowledge that you exist. I'm not willing to do anything with that information yet. Right. I need to keep thinking about it. And also, mm-hmm. I'm going to send birds. This guy has a birds. thing for birds. He has a huge thing for birds, which is so funny. And I honestly, I thought that was super cute when he gifts her the birds. And then as she's like waiting to hear from him, she sets the birds free. And then the birds come back. I was like, oh, this is like 15th century text messages. I love this. <laughs> As somebody who is afraid of birds, I would not know what to do if like somebody that I wanted to pursue a romantic relationship with was just like sending me foul. I'd be like, uh, (laughs) That's definitely a red flag for me as well. I'm terrified of birds. (laughs) That would firmly be a red flag. But for Anna Kayona, like – It did it for her. (laughs) It works. And I'm so happy for her. Um, And in the end, she does get her way, which I have to say like because she was interested in him – because it felt like you said earlier on, Amber, like she has much more agency in this situation than I think a lot of her contemporaries did. Like I did not feel quite as achy about it as I did in the other Royal Diaries books. I mean, there is of course the plain fact that she's extremely young and the expectations on somebody of her age to like go be a wife and everything that that means is really overwhelming to think about now in our contemporary time. But she was excited about it. Like this was who she wanted to be with. Yeah, and I also was a little bit soothed by the fact that 
even though the marriage was clearly a very strategic move, it didn't seem like she was being treated like a trading card. Like you get with a lot of books like this, where it's like, oh, we don't know if we want to get in good with this country or this country. So we're going to put you before both of them. We're going to see who makes us the better deal. And then we'll send you there. It really did seem like they gave him the opportunity to come to her. Other people had the chance to come to her. And she ultimately made the decision about where and who she wanted to be with. Yes, I agree. And I pulled out a couple of quotes from her about marriage that I wanted to share and kind of get your take, Amber. So let me clarify a couple of character names before I get into these, because I don't know that we have said these names yet. So Anna Kaona's brother's name is Behicio. And again, he is the one who's kind of like sharing her potential power. And then her her husband, or at the beginning, her crush is named Chief Keonabo. And he is from the island of Maguana. Um, and again, listeners, these are new words for me. Um, I'm doing my best to keep them consistent and correct based on my research. Um, but feel free to correct me if you're aware that I'm saying them incorrectly. Okay, so one quote that I wanted to read is, in light of Behicio's marriage, I have decided that I will only marry on the condition that the status of the man I am joined with is equal to my own, one with powers that are equal to those I must surrender here in Zaragoza. I mean, hello. That's the kind of feminism I can get behind. I'm here for this. Yeah. That also makes me think, what did you think about Bahicio's marriage situation? Because he like gets married. And I honestly, I was concerned. I was like, where are we going with this? Are they going to make him like, am I going to hate him? Because he very quickly goes from having one wife to having many wives, which is clearly their custom. So that wasn't the problematic part. But then he has this moment with one of his wives, whose name I'm forgetting. I know it starts with a Y. Yoruba. Yeah. And I couldn't tell. I was like, did he like abuse her? Was he like violent towards her? Was he like cruel towards her? What is the situation? with him and the wives. So I think the situation with Pahichio and his wives is that he just is feeling himself. Mm. So we kind of get the message that like he is so into having these wives that he has like taken a little bit of a break from learning how to be the ruler. And so that's actually why Anna Kaona is not allowed to marry initially. Like there seems to be this They're like, we don't know if this man is going to pull it together and pay attention. So you might have to do this by yourself. (laughs) Right. Which is like so frustrating and also like so true to life. Like we're going to have you on the back burner just in case. Just in case the man can't man. (laughs) Exactly. Like you be right here. We're not going to like officially name you. We're not going to give you a title, but like in case he gets, if he continues to be distracted by his wives, then you, we'll call you in and you can do the work. That would be awesome. Yep. And and in the meantime, like, please don't live your life. Like, that's kind <laughs> of what happens. So I think Pichichio just was like, oh, wow. Like, isn't this so fun? Like, look at all these wives. He got one wife and he was like, this is so fun. What if I had 10 of them? <laughs> right. Because it took him a while, I think, to take even one wife. Yeah. Like, at, at first it was like, okay, why is it taking him so long? Why can't he choose a wife? And then it did seem to escalate pretty quickly. And he gets himself into some, like, really sad situations. Like you said, Amber, one of his wives, Yoruba, actually ends up dying by suicide. She yeah. poisons herself. And... Bahichio doesn't know it. Anna Kaona does, but Yoruba is pregnant when this happens. And I think we're meant to believe that, like, the reason that she poisons herself is because she is so scared of being pregnant and of bringing a child into her marriage or into the world. I guess I didn't read it that Bahichio was abusive, but I think if nothing else, he certainly is abusive of his power, perhaps, in these relationships. Like, maybe Yoruba was like, okay, this guy is, he's, 
probably also a teenager. I don't think we know exactly how old he is, but he has to be like 16, 17, 18. Yeah, like she's seeing this name. guy. Yeah, she's seeing this guy who's a teenager. She's like, he has all these other women that are his wives. I was happy to be part of this until he got distracted. And now I'm freaked out by this. Yeah. I think it was definitely the pregnancy portion that made me think like, oh, maybe something bad is happening. And I don't think I thought it was necessarily violent, but more just like he was maybe just full of himself, like you said, but the power was getting to him in a way that just made him cruel or Mm. because it was so easy to be stuck in marriage because especially marriage to someone who is like nobility because there's so much riding on you staying with that person. It's not just do you guys like each other? It's do our islands like each other and do they help each other moving forward? And it just seemed like she was really cracking under that. I didn't think it was going to, her story would end like it did. I thought she was just going to run away and like successfully go back and that that was going to have implications for Anna Kayona's marriage. So it definitely caught me off guard when she ends up dying by suicide. And that deeply affects Anna Kayona too. Like it's interesting because it didn't seem like they knew each other very well, but that's a huge turning point in Anna Kayona's journey because she started to have all of these thoughts about her own mortality and like yeah. this legacy question, which almost reminded me of Hamilton, like who lives, who <laughs> dies, who tells your story. Like totally, she really reflects on what people think of her and kind of what people will describe her as after she is gone. And that calls into question this idea of like, will I be a wife? Will I be a Mm -hmm. chief? Like, Mm -hmm. what is my role in my community? And she has such a sense of duty to her people, which I really appreciated. Like in her decision to marry Keonabo, like it seemed to me that she was basically like, if I can be of more service here in Zaragoza with my people, then I will stay here. But if that's no longer the case and I can maybe like be a great ambassador to my home island and serve other people and kind of keep the wheels turning on our partnership, then I will gladly marry somebody from another island and go there. So it felt like she is taking on this responsibility because of how she's processing Yoruba's death, like even more because she's like, I'm seeing how heavy life is. And if I'm going to be remembered, I want it to be as somebody who like did the most for the most people. Yeah, completely. And I think that her short time with her also really made her think about the role of friendship in her life. Mm. Because even throughout the book, she knows so many people, but so many people that she knows and has a relationship with, she's either the person of power, given that she is going to one day like rule with her brother potentially, or it's someone who is kind of just like in a service role to her. So like she's known them and they love each other clearly, but it's like a healer or someone who has helped her in the village and has like been supportive of their family. So I think this is the first time that I mean, even when Ahechio, when he starts taking wives, she mentions in the book, like, oh, I thought this was going to be me getting sisters, and it hasn't been that. So I think that she's always questioning, like, how do my relationships function in my life? What role do they play? How do I form genuine ones outside of just me getting a husband and being a ruler? Yeah, that's true. We don't really see her interacting with other girls her age like that's just not part of her world Mm -hmm. which again is something I think I remember from the other royal diaries books like all of these young royal women are set apart from their peers and that's like the everybody sees like the power and the glamour inherent in being born into these families but there's so much responsibility and isolation so much isolation yeah so in the end, we know that Anna Kayona does decide to accept the marriage proposal. But as you said, Amber, she gets to make that choice. And I did want to share um, kind of that decision-making process. Uh, she writes, or she thinks to herself in the context of this fictional diary, 
It was as though I was holding the fate of Zaragoza in my hands. At the same time, I was glad that my choice was so plain, so simple. Before me was someone I already admired and might even love. I could have had the same offer from someone I despised. Rather than marry someone I hated, I would have remained in Zaragoza. But with the great opportunity that this marriage presented, how could I refuse? Seems like she's, so I mean, it's, she's like doing the best she can. Yeah. She's being pretty mature for her age. And yet she's really happy that she's into him. <laughs> so happy. It's also so funny because she's like, I like him. I respect him. I might even love him. And I'm like, haven't you guys met like twice? <laughs> yeah. Like they don't. And then she gets there and she, they like, she realizes that she doesn't know him at all. Yeah, completely. But it is nice to see that she's also taking time to just be so introspective and really mm-hmm. kind of work through her own thoughts, which is also why I think that this diary format works so well because it shows you kind of who they are and how they even think of themselves, how they sort life out in their own internal monologue. We're just reading it on the page. Yeah. I also think it's worth noting that by this point, she has already realized that she is not going to be running the show in Zaragoza. Um, This kind of occurs to her after they're hit with a major natural disaster after a storm. Yeah. And she has this moment where she's like, I didn't need anybody to tell me that it's my brother who's going to end up taking charge. And so she makes, again, a choice that she feels is best for her, but also for her island for the other islands that they're in partnership with. So she's like, okay, my next best thing is to go be married to Keonabo um, and see what can happen there. I also wanted to call out before we kind of move into that part of the book that before she makes this move and gets married, she has been training with like the military basically on her island, which I loved. Uh, Yeah. And it's like, in addition to becoming a trained warrior, is low-key a military strategist where she's like, no, we always do it this way. Yeah. There's this other, I guess, neighboring island that's not far that has a reputation for raiding all the other villages. And she's like, they always do this. We need to switch our whole strategy around. We need to train people this way. And I thought that was amazing. And I also love that it's very apparent in their culture and in their society that there are not these super rigid gender roles. It was not seen as weird to want to arm the women as much as they arm the men or for a woman to be speaking up and leading on what their military strategy should be. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the historical fiction narratives that I read from this time period that highlighted women, like it was a lot of women like chopping off their hair and pretending to be men so they could be in the army. Like that Mm -hmm. was the story much more than this. And it's like, like we were saying before, these people groups existed all along. We just weren't learning about them. Yeah, completely. Yeah, so it was very cool that she was training to be a warrior and that when she gets to her new home, she's like, yeah, I'm a warrior. Like, I'm a warrior because I was a warrior and also, like, my husband's a warrior now, so we're just, like, warriors together. Yeah, she's like, you know, had had a couple spears in my day. <laughs> no big deal. Um, But she also ends up getting pregnant pretty quickly. Yeah. And there is a moment where she she says to herself, like, I was trained to be a ruler, but nobody ever taught me how to be a mother. Which hit me deep. Yeah. I thought that was so hard hitting because the book also opens with the birth of a child. It's like someone else in her village has a kid and she's super like into it and seeing the baby be named and everything. And it's like, that's so, when you think about all the things that we've been showing her to know what to do at this point from being a warrior to being ready to take over as leader if she needed to, when she thought her uncle was going to die, she was ready to step in whenever her time came. But then something that, is always portrayed as being so intuitive. She's like, I have no idea how to do this. 
Yes, which flies in the face, again, of so many of the narratives that we, I think, have read from this time period. Like, I think that many of the stories that I read of young girls growing up in the 15th century, it was like, oh, yes, like, of course, I will have children and be a mother. And like, that feels like the next right thing. (laughs) And Anna Kayona embraces that role and ends up like just adoring her baby. But it's not natural to her. And again, like, I was so happy about like the honesty of this because she is she's a teenager, like she's not supposed to know how to do this. I don't think anybody really knows how to do this. Yeah, I mean, there I would not imagine having a baby right now today. And I'm almost 29. Like she was probably 17. Of course, she had no idea what she was doing. She wasn't supposed to. Yeah, I'm in my early 30s. And my friends who are having babies like call me and they're like, it's too hard. I don't know what I'm doing. So I can't imagine being a teenager. And I think she handled herself pretty well. I agree. We love her. I mean, I love her. I, I, I'm obs- love her. I think that she is such a boss. I love her. We need more Anna Kaona content. Agreed. How do we make that happen? This should 100% be like an animated Netflix series or something. Yeah, and I want like a live action biopic. Yeah. I want all of it. Like yeah. where is Anna Kaona in our in our history? We have so many like – remakes on TV right now too. Like every show is just, this came out in the 80s or 90s and now we're doing it again in the 2020s. And I'm like, or you could just go tell the stories that have never been told forever, but it's a different story for a different podcast. Yeah, entertainment folks, if you're listening, hear our plea. Please. We want we want this story. Give this us story, your exactly. reboots another time. We want this story. But unfortunately, we are getting to a very dark and difficult part of this story. Yeah. And- Again, because I knew so little about this geography and about this young woman when I started reading the book, it was only about like a third or half of the way through that I realized what was coming. Yeah, same. And I and I, my stomach dropped because Completely. I had fallen in love with her. And I honestly felt like all the bad things had already happened. Right. I was like, you've had a hurricane. Yeah. You have this other island that's planning to come invade you. That's why you're training to be warriors. Like you're strategizing for the military. Your uncle almost died. You've had to give up your throne. You've left your family. You're homesick. Like we're good. Yeah. There can't be anything else. Yeah. And yet. And yet then these pale skinned men show up. As she describes them, they look to her like ghosts. She's never seen anybody with this complexion. And they have guns. What did she call them? Metal sticks that like fired sparks into the sky? Yes, I think it was something like that. The guns are obviously extremely scary and jarring. Yeah. Especially because she's never seen them. But to me, the moment that I started to feel really afraid and to really sense the gravity of the situation was when they started coming up to her and just like touching her. Yeah. They immediately start treating people like property immediately. Yes. And then I was like, oh, okay, Columbus is coming. Yeah. At first I was like, is this Columbus now or is this like pre-Columbus? And I think the epilogue of the book kind of contextualizes that this would have been pre-Columbus, but it just was so intense and it's it was jarring how quickly the entire tone of the book shifted. Yeah, I I think these this is like the pre-Columbus wave of European men. And I believe what happened based on my understanding of the epilogue and a little more research is that they then went back mm-hmm. and kind of brought more men. There were They basically like this was the exploratory team that went back and confirmed that was like, yeah, tons of stuff, lots of people we could enslave. We should totally make a trip back there. Correct. And Columbus and his men set up something of a settlement on a neighboring island. And um, Anna Kayona and her people 
attacked that island. And so in the end, there was a huge raid on Anna Kayona's island. And she, in the end, is actually hanged when she's 29 years old, which is just awful to think about. Yeah. In addition to so many other awful things that happen. But I just, it's been a long time since I read something and had such a sense of dread. And I, yeah. and I read a lot. I know you read a lot. Um, listeners, you all read a lot. And I think that there is like, there's nothing like that emotional reaction of dread to a book. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is unique to historical fiction because you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is where this is going. And because we are in her head and we're seeing the world through her eyes and we've celebrated so many like joyous moments with her, like she's gotten what she wanted. She made the best yeah. of a hard situation. She has a baby that she loves. And then this happens, they actually like, they fire at her baby. Yeah. um, Which is just terrifying. And like that I think is for her the moment when she's like, oh, this is real. Yeah, it completely. Yeah, I totally agree that this just filled me with like so much anxiety too. I think I also had the moment where realizing like what this meant for this time in history, you start thinking about all the things that we have now that are completely reliant on moments like this having happened in history. Like, I don't know if you watched that Netflix show, High on the Hog, but it's all about like the African diaspora and food and how all these foods became what they are in America now. And there's several points in the book where she's talking about yucca and there's yucca everywhere now in America. And of course, you know, like this is this is not like an a something that's probably native to the Americas. But you see, like, it's not like, oh, people went and we traded steel for yucca. We have yucca here because things like this happen to people like hers. And it just is so, it's where you realize that, like, the historical gets a little bit higher than the fiction. And it's really, like, something to reckon with. Yes. And I think, like, that's a huge part of it. Also, like, she observes that they are, like, itching themselves. She's like, oh, they have sores on them. And I was like, oh, shit, smallpox. I was like, oh, my gosh, the smallpox. I was like, oh, no. Like, and I think that's when I really was like, oh, this is them. Like, here they are. And I also, it's so jarring because these, the men, they show up, like, when the first time that she actually sees them, they show up, guns out, fully blazing, ready to take whatever gold and materials they can bring back on their ship with them. But they're greeted with like, we should feed them. We should be hospitable to them and figure out what the deal is. Like they're not even approaching them with the thought that these people are going to do them harm or that they're going to come and shoot at their children and imprison and enslave their women and do a ton of other horrible, atrocious things to them as a people they're like, okay, this is a, a diplomatic thing. So let's handle this with some diplomacy. And that was never even on the agenda. And it's just like such a jarring juxtaposition of how the two groups work diplomatically. It's like, and I think we're always taught to believe that there couldn't have been diplomacy because those people, they didn't do that. There wasn't that. But I think having seen the first raid happen and how that was not like, it wasn't like, oh, they raided this island. So now we're going to go back and attack full force. There were so many other layers to the strategy of dealing with those people, but this was never that. And it's not Anna Kayona and her people who were the undiplomatic ones. It was these, I guess, Spanish settlers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the diary reads, this is when our visitors' intentions became clear to me. They were neither spirits nor gods. They were not looking for courtesies, allies, or friends. They were only looking for gold. And again, this is fictionalized, but I, I think it it bears repeating that 
when these people who look unlike anybody that Anna Kaona has ever seen before show up, the initial reaction, at least as it's portrayed here, which is based on a lot of research, mm-hmm. is not like violence or fear. It's like curiosity and probably some anxiety. But like you said, like they are trying to be polite and kind of find out what's happening. And they are certainly not reciprocated with similar openness. Um, The last paragraph before we get into the epilogue is really heartbreaking. It reads, yes, I want our victory over the pale men to be a tale that will inspire us when we have other battles to fight. One that reminds us that like the Kalinas, we are a strong and powerful people. I do want it to be a story whose veracity the young ones will ask me to confirm when I am an old woman, a story that my daughter will tell and retell to her own children. But I do not want it to become the only story we ever have to share with one another. It cannot be. It must not be. Ah, Such a powerful ending. Yeah. And it got me thinking about a lot of the discourse that is happening now about like the importance of a wide breadth of narratives from marginalized voices and and sort of like the need to the need for white people and other people in power to not just stick to these stories of pain and trauma and mm-hmm. to open their eyes to stories of black joy and of families rejoicing in all kinds of communities like it's not fair or real for the yeah. only story that marginalized communities ever get to share or talk about to be those associated with their losses and traumas. Mm -hmm. I feel like so many stories of marginalized groups through history are always told through everything was moderately whatever. A boatload of white people showed up and now we know nothing else about them from then. But I also, after reading this, want to hear about stories of people living in that region now. Like, What is life like now? What are your ordinary mundane thoughts and experiences now that aren't out to teach me a lesson or to contextualize history, but it just are a celebration of the fact that despite all of this, you still exist. And that is a feat in and of itself because there are so many people who can't say the same for their cultures. And we should celebrate the fact that those people are still allowed to be ordinary, everyday people who love and make mistakes and get into mess and have hard decisions and have fun and are relatable in so many different ways just because they have such a unique human experience. Yeah, I love that. That's so well said. And I also think the people of Haiti continue to like be constantly hit with so many challenges and they continue to persevere unfortunately yeah. like a lot of the headlines we read about what goes on there are about pain and loss mm-hmm. and disaster and i've read a few narratives written by haitian authors and about haitian people and they always bring me a lot of joy just to see people living their lives yeah i think that it also completely and this also plays again on a lot of people i feel like who went to school in america Geography is just like, you know, sometimes all you get is a flat map. So we are like, oh, some islands where honestly they have been ruled by colonial powers longer and have been made into huge tourist trades. Those are the pretty ones. But you don't picture all the other ones who are around the literal corner as being beautiful and sunny and bright and happy and hopeful. So when you say Puerto Rico... People who have been to a resort in Puerto Rico can picture beautiful, bright, sunny Puerto Rico, but they don't picture beautiful, bright, sunny, beachy Haiti. And we have to realize that these areas are all so close together and they are equally as beautiful, despite the fact that we only hear bad things about one all the time. Mm -hmm. And I I want to learn more about Anna Kayona. 
and others who lived there before and were forced to weather such horrific treatment in order for even more horrific things to happen. Like mm-hmm. the, the sad part is that it's not like Anna Kaona went through this so that things could then get better. Like this is yeah. just the beginning of a really long stretch of brutality. And it obviously like brings me no joy to share that, but it's so important that we understand it and that we take it in. And it's something that I want to continue to reflect on because I, again, like I'm just mortified that I have never even heard this person's name. Yeah, I know. I am too. So I'm so grateful that you chose this book and educated me on something that I was embarrassingly ignorant about. Um, Amber, I know you didn't read this particular book when you were a kid, so we can't compare it to any childhood reading experience. But on the whole, I'm curious as to how this time reading this Royal Diaries book maybe compares to what you do remember of other Royal Diaries books or just how you reflect on it in general overall. Yeah, I feel like because I have read others and I did read others when I was younger, this time around, I really just felt like it was completing the story because so many of the other Royal Diaries that I was exposed to were the white ones essentially. And you hear about like, oh, the men had to go away for war and it was so sad or he had to go on a journey and it was so sad, but we don't get the other side. And now I feel like the circle is kind of complete. So I do feel like I would have loved at a young age to have read a story of Elizabeth I and then also read Anna Kayona because that is literally just closing the cycle of both of their lived experiences and gives such a fuller, more vibrant, accurate depiction of history. And I was always a big history nerd when I was younger, so I know I would have in this up too but I think it's really interesting that even though it's not it's told through the moon cycles it does help you kind of get a better chronological idea of how history panned out too absolutely and I don't know if you saw this last year but there is news of a mini series of the royal diaries books I didn't see this yes Amber's eyes just lit up listeners justice for Anna Kayona she needs to be the headliner okay yeah I I should read more before I say that but I episode one that would be a very juicy premiere if she was episode one yeah I certainly will be on the lookout for her name um, on the episode list once it comes out but we will keep our eyes open for more information about that adaptation I think it's still pretty early days there but I'm personally very excited other than Anna Kayona Amber what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners oh my goodness I've had such a weird reading year because I feel like I'm just reading a lot of all the things I didn't get to at the end of last year I will say a few weeks ago I read the first book in Sarah J. Mass's new series, the Crescent City series, which I was not planning to dislike, but did not expect to like as much as I did. And I was posting about it as I read it. And I was like, rating a Sarah J. Mass book five stars was like not on my 2022 bingo card, but it happens. I absolutely love that book. Yes, it's 800 pages. Yes, she needs a better editor. It did not have to be, but it was so good. And I think that if you are interested in reading fantasy and you want to like dip your toe in and get an idea for what fantasy is like, but still be able to not be intimidated by it. It's a great place to start. But I also have a ton of middle grade on my TBR right now. I started reading last year, um, the Nevermore series, The Tales of Morgan Crow. And it's a perfect series. Like the books are perfect. So I have to finish the second and then start the third in that series. 
Yeah, Nevermore is pretty perfect. It's a perfect book. A perfect book. Oh, and another middle grade that I recently read and loved are The Lost Girls of Dragomir Academy. Another perfect book. If you loved Nevermore, you will love that book. It's so good. And perfect is a pretty big word, and I trust it coming from you, Amber. And thank you for the endorsement on Crescent City. I feel like I am so out of the loop on all of these massive fantasy series. Like, I have not started Court of Throne. How do you even say it? I have not started Akatar. I don't even know how to say it. I have not started Akatar yet, and I feel you don't have to read it. Don't honestly. I I, this is gonna get me probably some hate because there's like you know the mass fans are intense. You don't have to read it. I read the first two in it. I honestly could not tell you a thing that happened in the second book. I was just like, wow, we're still here. But Crescent City was much better written in my opinion the pacing was a lot better and it was just more interesting to me you don't have to read any of her previous series to read it but I read that book and I could not stop thinking about it for eight days wow I am just at the point now where I'm able to like read other books it consumed my entire brain capacity Eight and days. I was not expecting that. A hundred pages a day. That's like two books. Like it's <laughs> a lot. Wow. Okay. So everybody, be nice to Amber. If you love Akatar, everybody's entitled to their opinion. And no Akatar hate, but I just I do think you could skip it. I do. I really appreciate your candor there. So Amber, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do at your podcast. Thanks for asking. What else you're working on these days? Uh, Where can everybody find you? Yeah. So one, this was so much fun. Thanks again for letting me talk books. I love talking books. We do a lot of that on my own podcast where we really just have conversations that everyone is having in silos but would benefit from saying out loud. So we want to talk about all the things that we're going through collectively, collectively, instead of making everyone suffer and struggle individually. And of course, that always results in lots of great book recs to help us all get through. So we drop episodes every Thursday. And then in between that, you can always find me on Instagram and anywhere else social media is made at by Amber Burns. Awesome. Well, everybody listen to SSR on Tuesdays. And thank you for asking on Thursdays. What a great week. That's a great week. I mean, why do you even need to have Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? You like, really don't, honestly. Just honestly, skip you can Wednesday. read on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then you listen to the pods on Tuesday and Thursday, True. and then yeah. you rest on the weekend. Or you could read more, whichever. <laughs> I think we've just cracked it. Like we've just solved You're welcome. The, the weekday situation for yeah, everyone. I like it. I love it too. Well, (laughs) listeners, I will have links to all of Amber's stuff at the show notes for this episode. I will also have a link to the Anna Kaona book and all the books that Amber recommended. Amber, thank you so much for taking this time to chat with me. This was so fun. Thanks for having me. Yes, I loved every second of this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.